Lord, we just come before you and ask you to guide and lead as we open your word. You show us what you'd have us to see. We thank you for each person that's here and those that aren't here for whatever reason that you'll be with them, their doctor's appointments, traveling, and all that's going on. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. All right, we're in Matthew 17. And we're going to be in uh, verse 22. We just had the healing of the, the child that had the spirit in him that kept falling down. And, and Jesus told him that that spirit could only come out through prayer and fasting. And in verse uh, 22, we read the next section. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus spoke to them and said, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of man, and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised to dead, raised again. And they were exceedingly sorry. And I just want to stop there because that's the end of the little paragraph, but it's kind of an interesting thing. A couple of verses back, or maybe even a chapter ago, we said that from that point on, Jesus started telling them about his death. And this is something, and we've talked about this, it never seems to make sense to them. They were exceedingly sorry that he's going to die and rise again. <laughs> doesn't make much sense. If he said, I'm going to die and be gone from you forever... I could see them being sorrowful, but he says, I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm going to come back to life. That should excite them, I would think, and yet, I don't think they hear the whole message ever. And we've got to think about this, and again, we've got to put ourselves, and I've said this over and over again, in the mindset of these disciples. This is the Messiah they're following. He's supposed to be setting up the kingdom, kicking Rome out of Israel, and making Israel the center of rule for the entire world. This is their mindset. So every time Jesus talks about dying and rising again, it kind of just doesn't compute with them. It's, their mind instantly goes, does not compute. Uh, I just hear mumbo jumbo, nothing makes sense. And they just don't understand it because it does not make sense. And I keep, when I do this, I keep bringing this up. How many times do we as Christians hear things that God says to us that just don't seem to make sense? And where many, time, many times we are just like the disciples. Uh, God, you, Jesus, you said you were going to die and come back in three days. doesn't make sense. We're not going to accept it. Yeah, so you ignore it. You ignore it, which is a terrible thing to be doing. And yet, pretty much that's what they did. Or a couple of verses back, you know, Peter takes Jesus aside. He was the Lord and Master. And he says, uh, you're not going to die. It's not going to happen. Yeah, that's quite a bold thing to tell, tell somebody who is your teacher, your instructor, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. It's not going to happen. And this is what keeps happening. Every time they're told this, it just it doesn't compute. But I always want to make sure we understand, we cannot be too hard on them because we do the same thing all the time. And when we look at the Bible and God says to do something, we go, no, God, I think that's too hard, or I don't think that's the right way of doing it. Basically, we're doing the same thing the disciples did. Uh, doesn't compute, forget, ignore. Uh, do not Do not consider... Throw it in the trash bin because it doesn't make sense. So that's all I want to say on that, that, that little section there because it's, we've said it so many times already. And again, remember, Matthew is writing about Jesus as king. He's writing to the Jewish people and presenting Jesus as the king, the Messiah. And so the, all these statements that he puts in kind of are very strange to the, disciple, uh, to the Jews that are reading this. Verse 24. And when they were come into Capernaum, then they, they, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Does your master 
uh, does not your master pay tribute? And he said, yes. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, what think you, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter said unto him, of strangers. Jesus said unto him, then are the children free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go you to the sea, cast a hook in, and take up the fish that first comes up. And when you have opened his mouth, you shall find a piece of money take and give to, unto them for me and you. This is an interesting statement uh, picture, and it goes into the way that the church was run in, in Israel. And it says, when they came to Capernaum, which is Jesus' home area, Nazareth is up there in the area of Capernaum, the guys who took up the tribute asked Peter, does your master give the tribute? This tribute, you've got to first understand, is not Caesar's tribute. This is the tribute that goes to pay for the tabernacle. It's half a shekel tribute every year for every male 20 years or over. They pay half a shekel to the temple. It's tax, tribute, tithe, offering, however you want to however you want to look at it. It was membership. They still do it in the in the synagogues today. In the Old Testament, it was mandated that you paid half a shekel every year for the upkeep of the temple and the and the Levites, above and beyond your offer any free will offerings. So we don't really want to call it an offering. It was technically free will, but it was also mandated. And so it was above and beyond your tithe, above and beyond your gifts. It was something that God says, you are going to give this. And they basically, if you were a good Jew, you gave it willingly. If you weren't, you kind of, it wasn't, they weren't going to throw you in prison for not doing it, but you were looked down on. You didn't, you didn't fulfill your duty to the temple. And so they came to Peter and said, you know, they're back home. You know, remember, most of the disciples are from this area. And they're going, your, your uh, master, he's in his 30s. Is he going to pay his tribute? He's over 20. You know, is, is he going to pay his tribute? And so Peter instantly says, basically, yes, of course he's going to pay his tribute. <laughs> uh, doesn't even think about it. Does, and and we gotta, you got to love Peter. He sticks his foot in his mouth in everything he does. You know, he didn't even think. He didn't say, well, I've got to go talk to him and find out what, it, what, what he thinks about this. He just answers, yes. That's kind of an interesting picture. How many times do we say something before we pray, before we ask for God's guidance or leading? And uh, for many of us, it's almost all the time or most of the time. uh, Well, hopefully not everything you say, but, but, um, no, I don't know. Oftentimes, so often we will say something first before we pray, before we consider God, before we've been thinking about his thoughts. It's one thing to speak first if you've been thinking his thoughts and meditating on his word and, and his word comes out of your mouth. But how many times do we say something and then we go, oh, I wish I could re- retract those words. I wish I, wish I had never said those things. But we want to be very careful about this because the Bible tells us we're going to give account for every idle word we speak. Now, for some people, that's a very scary thought. When they think about all the, all the things they have said, all the 
coarse speaking they have said, all the, the irrelevant jokes that make fun of somebody at their expense. Now, and I'm not saying all humor is wrong, but we've got to be very careful about how we, how we do it. You can be forgiven. You've got to repent. You go to God and, and ask God, and he'll put it under the blood, and you will be covered. You know, I'm, I mean, there's just so much. Watch your words. <laughs> you just ask God to forgive those as much as you can. But we all have plenty of sin. I mean, there's plenty of sin we're not going to even know that we've done that we've, that's going to be hard to confess. So we confess everything we know. And ask God to forgive us, you know, bring to remembrance or forgive us of the things we can't remember. And I mean, literally can't remember. Not just God, I'm being lazy. I don't want to think about this. <laughs> you know, forgive me of everything I've ever done. It's not, a, it's not a strong prayer. But once you've gone through and God, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. And God, if I've forgotten anything, either bring it to my memory so I can confess it or please put it under the blood and, I can, you know, and accept it as a confession. But, you know, it's not just, well, God, forgive me of everything I've ever done. I've heard a lot of kids pray that. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, that's not what he's looking for. And Peter just automatically says, of course he does. Yeah, it's, it's required, he's going to do it. Without, without even thinking, without considering. And then he goes to the house, and, and the King James says, and Jesus prevented him. And it's, that's not really a good translation of that verse. It's Jesus spoke to him before he even had a chance to say anything. Okay, he preempted his argument, his question, basically. Uh, and it goes, uh, uh, Peter, what do you think? <laughs> uh, Do the, the king's children pay taxes or the, the people? That's a paraphrase of that statement. Yeah, because Jesus is the son of God. The temple is his temple. And Peter has committed him to pay, his own, pay himself. <laughs> you know, pay, pay for his own temple. And he goes, do, do the children pay or do the strangers? A very interesting, very thought-provoking statement that he's making him consider. Who is the one that pays? And when you think about it, Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice to buy us back because he chose to obey the Father and do so, but he could have you know, said they're not worth, that we're not worth it. And we sang the song Sunday, 10, 000, he could have called 10,000 angels, and I love that song because at any point Jesus could have just said, Father, these people aren't worth it. This is too much pain. I'm not going to buy them back. Just take me, take me back. Or, or angels, come and deliver me. And 10,000, more than, more than Rome had sold you know, uh, in, a, uh, in a legion, and more than was in Jerusalem. And when you think that one angel killed 175,000 Assyrian troops, if God called a whole legion of angels, what would have happened to this world? And said, you know, he could have easily have just said, Father, there is not worth it. I don't love him enough to do this. And yet his love held him to the cross. And he goes to Peter, you know, what do you think? You know, and Peter very wisely answered uh, the strangers. <laughs> it's a kind of an easy question. You know, the children don't pay the taxes. The, you know, they don't pay the tribute. And then Jesus said, the children are free. And, you know, when we get to heaven... We do not have to pay for our entrance to heaven. Jesus has paid that price for us. And we really do have to get hold of the idea and the fact that Jesus paid all of our sin debt. What will keep us out of heaven is very simply not accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's the only thing that keeps us out of heaven. Now, if we live a lifestyle that is full of sin and we always sin and we don't seem to be growing, then we might have to think about, do I know Jesus? 
do I truly know this man that I say that I believe in? Because perpetual sin shows that we are not converted. Our heart has not been converted, as we're going to see in the next, next chapter. But if our heart has been converted, I wish I could say we're not going to sin, but we're going to sin. And we're still going to sin a lot, but we're not going to sin as much as before we were converted. And as we get sanctified, we should sin less and less, especially outward. But even mentally, our, our mindset should be changed that we start thinking more and more like God. And it takes time. And it takes years, decades, to finally get to the place where our mindset gets changed and we start thinking more like God. And hopefully you're starting to see it already. People don't, you're not quite as quick to demand justice of people. You love people a little more. You're maybe a little more patient with people. You're more forgiving with people. Uh, you're more forgiving with yourself. And a lot of it starts with learning to forgive ourselves, because God has forgiven us. If we can't forgive ourselves, we, we cannot forgive other people. I'm sorry, people will tell you it's easier to forgive others, but no, because if you don't know how to forgive, you're not going to forgive others. And when we've talked about it the other day, forgiveness is letting go of the desire for punishment. How many people in the churches today are looking to punish themselves because of all the sin they've done? God, I just deserve punishment. I've got to I, send me bad things. We might not be that, quite that blunt, but we're expecting bad things to come our way all the time. Well, the, I deserve this. It's mine. Well, no, you might deserve it, but God is going to give you grace. He's going to give you mercy. Not if you're going to abuse it, but he's going to give all this stuff. He, he doesn't want us to suffer if we can learn any other way but by suffering. If we have to have suffering, you'll say, okay, you can have all the suffering you need to, to grow. And some people need a lot of it because they just won't walk in forgiveness. They won't rest in the faith that God has forgiven them, the statement that God has forgiven them. They won't rest in grace. They won't just let God bless them. And I've heard it. Believe me, over the years I've heard it. I, well, and they just totally, I don't deserve any of this stuff, you know, and it's, you know, and it's almost a false humility that they're talking. You know, you, you, you hear the pride of, well, I'm just getting what I deserve. You know, I'm also pride. You know, I didn't, really didn't want to do this, but. And God is just saying, it's under the blood. Forget it. If the consequences come, thank God, grow from it and learn. But we want to grow in his grace. Learn to forgive ourselves. Then Jesus said in 27, notwithstanding, okay, but, but just because you started something, lest we should offend them, go to the sea and cast a hook. Now, this is kind of interesting because I've never, this is really the first time I've ever noticed this, cast your hook. I've always thought about them fishing with nets. I never thought of them fishing the same way that our fishermen anglers do with a reel and a hook of some sort. You know, probably not a reel, but because in, in Scotland, I remember we went fishing and you had everything wrapped around this big board and you just let it... <laughs> You unwound it, and then you wound it back up. Uh, but he had a hook. And he says, take the first fish that you catch, open its mouth, and give the money to pay your tax and my tax. Which definitely shows us one thing. Peter is over 20. <laughs> okay? There's, a, there's somebody I heard teach you know, just a couple weeks ago that said that he believes because of this verse that the other disciples were all under 20, and it might, not, it might be true or might not. We do know that the disciples were young. They were fairly young. We know John was very young. He was probably well under 20. 
And it is possible the rest of them were just 20, you know, just at 20 or just below 20. I have a feeling that Matthew, the tax collector, was probably over 20, in my own personal opinion, but didn't have to be. Because, uh, you know, it's kind of an amazingness of phenomenon. In our day and age, we let, we let people be kids until 18 or even 20 or 21 will excuse them as just being kids. Well, in the Jewish life, they, they were considered a man at age 12. They weren't necessarily kicked out of their house at age 12, but as far as it was the community was concerned, this was an adult. And they were expected to behave like adults. And it wasn't so long ago, even in our country, that people in their teens were expected to be good workers and responsible adults. You know, you're, you're 14, How, what's wrong with you? You're not a child anymore. And nowadays, you know, well, we go all the way, you know, I, I've heard people even make the case of, well, this, they're, in their, they're in their 20s, they're still a kid. No, you know, you've got to say they've grown up at some place. And the word teaches us that you're not an irresponsible kid. You know? And even, he goes, even a child is known by his ways. And if you've ever dealt with children, you know darn well that that's true. There are children that you know that are just going to be bad because of the ways they're behaving. And unless God gets hold of their heart, you can see them you know, being a misfit or being in prison because you just see the way that they're walking. And then you see other children that are following God. I think about Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego. They were somewhere around 13 or 14 years old when they were brought into Nebuchadnezzar's training camp for, for wise men. And, you know, they immediately, Daniel immediately decides he's going to honor God. At 13 or 14 years old, he says, I am not going to eat this food offered to the idols. And how often do we let, you know, teenagers in 20s, you know, ah, they're just a child, they're going to make mistakes. That's the world's way of thinking because it's like, well, it's no big deal. They're, they're young, they can make all the mistakes they want, and they got plenty of time to make their, make their corrections. But there's lots of people that are much, much older than they should be they, that are still children. They still think like children, still act like children. When they act like children, they are children for all practical purposes. They shouldn't be. But... We see here that many of the disciples were young, and possibly very young. And there's nothing in there that tells them how old. We do know that Peter's over 20 because of this statement. Go pay your, your tax and my tax with the money you get in the fish. So we know that Peter is over 20. How much over 20, we don't know. Uh, but he also seems to be the leader. So I have a feeling that he was the oldest of the disciples because he's always the spokesman. He's the, the bold one out front. <laughs> And usually the eldest of a group is the, is the leader, unless it's a real close aged, aged group. So I would, I would have no problem saying that Peter is definitely a few, quite a few years older than any of the other disciples. But Jesus is saying, you opened your mouth. You said we're going to pay our taxes, so you go get the fish that I'm going to provide. And you'll, you'll open the fish's mouth, and there will be a coin in it so that you can pay the tax, you know, the, temple, the tribute for us. You know, and it also just goes... How can God provide for us any way he wants? <laughs> you know, he, he can use a fish. to The first fish he catches has money in its mouth. Now, did that fish swallow money? Did God just put the gold in there that Peter had to go uh, get it from him? I don't know. God used a donkey to speak to Balaam and, and, and correct him. It's, you know, God can use anything, any way, and do anything, anything he wants to get his will done. And so when, when we want to limit God, God, uh, I just don't have this, that, or the other thing, 
We're telling God, God, I don't believe that you can do what you want. And we've got to keep in mind, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and, no, and he owns the hills that the cattle are walking on. And all the gold is in those hills and diamonds or whatever else. He owns the whole world. And if for some reason he ever ran out of funds, he'd just create more funds. And I think there's plenty of funds in, the, in this world to pay anything that needs to be paid for. But if, by some really wild stretch of imagination, God ran out of money, ran out of stuff that could be used for money, he'd just create more. Because that's perfectly within his realm to do. So we want to be careful that we don't limit God and what God can do. You know, you, you share with people and they go, well, I just can never do that. Well, probably you can't, but God in you can. When somebody's talk, talked into teaching, well, I don't know that I can teach. Well, I hope not, but God in you can teach. You know, trust God. I, don't, I can't share the gospel because I just don't have enough courage. Well, God in you should have enough courage because he tells us a command to go share. So if it's, he doesn't give us the courage, then he's lied to us. He's told us to do something we cannot do, and he's lied to us, and we're in trouble if God lies. So he never lies. He will give us the strength to do what he asks to be done. So just a quick mention on that. What can God do? Anything. Everything. Uh, you know, technically, there's a few things he can't do. He can't lie, but that's because he will never violate who he is. Uh, so he'll never act outside of his character, period. Uh, he'll never accept a, a, a sinner in his own righteousness into heaven because his standard is perfection. But those are things that he does because he says, I will not violate my character. And because he does not violate his character, he will do certain things or not do certain things. But not because he can't. And there's a you know, big, big deal when people want to try to prove how smart they are. They'll go, if God can make anything, can he make a rock that's so big he can't move it? And it's supposed to be a logical conundrum. You know, God can do anything, so can he make a big enough thing that he can't move it? Because, you know, he should be able to make something that big you know, if he can do everything. You know, but he's all-powerful. So, I mean, it's a, because they don't understand the one side, they come up with this really, you know, thing that they think is a logical you know, idea that you can't get over. And, you know, all you can do is let them take joy in their pride because they're not going to accept that, you know, God is all-powerful. There's no way he can make something that he can't do because that, by definition, can't happen. It's like trying to tell somebody, you know, well, I'm in, the middle of, I'm in the middle of eternity. Well, no, you're never in the middle of eternity because there is no middle. Or, you're, or technically, you're always in the middle of eternity because it goes on forever in either direction. Uh, or, I love it, you know, we're close to the end of eternity. Uh, how do you get to the end of something that doesn't end? <laughs> or the other extreme, I'm at the beginning of eternity. <laughs> Again, you're at the same, you're at the same problem. Uh, this is something I've heard when I've talked to people about uh, the laws of thermodynamics, that, that the world is, that matter is not created or, de or cha uh, destroyed, it's only changed, and it tends to wind down. I'm going, the total fact that it tends to wind down tells us that there's a beginning. Otherwise, we'd be at the end. <laughs> you know, and it's a logical thing, because if matter has always existed, like the first law says, then we should be somewhere toward the middle or end, which, as far as you could, if it's been going forever, it should be wound down. And it's a theoretical thing, and it's something you have to understand in those terms. But basically, the laws of thermodynamics says that energy had a beginning. That's supernatural. 
Even though it says you can't have a beginning, that it doesn't, isn't created or destroyed, it had something supernatural outside of nature that started it. Otherwise, it would be dead if it was eternal. And it's a very complex, complex discussion that I've had it many times on college with people because they tend to think in these terms and make them think. You've been taught this. What do you think about this? Is it true? And I love, I love giving them conundrums like that because it makes them, oh, yeah. Doesn't, now, it doesn't prove that our God created everything, but it just means something outside of nature started it. And now you can take whatever you want to be your <laughs> outside of nature. I'll take God because uh, that's what makes sense to me, a God outside of nature that starts nature. All right, chapter 18, verse 1. At the same time came disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as, a little, ch as little children, you shall not enter the, the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged around his head and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. All right, the disciples come to Jesus and they're going, who's the greatest? How, basically, they're asking not even who's the greatest, but how do we become the greatest? Yeah. How do I get to be the greatest one in the kingdom is what they're looking for. And remember, We've talked about this in their mindset. They're waiting for him to start his kingdom, kick Rome out, start a kingdom, and they're his right-hand men. They expect to be the dukes and, and barons and earls or whatever, whatever the equivalent was in the Jewish day. They were expecting to be nobility. And they're going, okay, who's going to have, who's going to have that right-hand seat? Okay. Another place we have uh, Salome asking Jesus that her sons be put at his right and left hand. You know, she's very bold. You know, Jesus, you know, I think you should make my sons, uh, uh, James and John, the uh, right and left hand, make, you know, give them promoted. And it says the disciples were indignant about this. You know, quite, quite, quite interestingly indignant because, number one, a, a woman was not supposed to speak to a rabbi. And here he is, she is speaking. And she's trying to promote her sons, a good mother, you know, hey, I'm the mother of these kids. I want you to promote my kids. You know, she was doing what moms do. Uh, had to deal with moms several times when I was a restaurant manager. Uh, you, should do, you should be doing this with my son or daughter. Well, I'll tell you what, when you want to employ them, you can do what you want to do with them. But he says, they come to him and goes, Who are they, who's going to be the greatest? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? In other words, what can I do to be great? Is what they're really asking. You know, what can I do? How can I perform to be great? And Jesus is going to teach them the lesson that it's not their works, not by works of righteousness that you have done, but by God's grace. So Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. This is a, literally when they say little child, they're talking infant, toddler. You know, in that he called the child over, it had to probably be a toddler. Okay, bad enough that he called a child. In Jesus' day, children, I mean, we used to hear the statement, you know, children are to be seen and not heard. Well, in this day, children weren't even to be seen or heard. Okay, they were non-existent 
people. They were worthless as far as they were concerned. All they were is something that cost you a bunch of money to feed and train. Okay, and they did not take a lot of joy in their children. They were, the mothers enjoyed having their children and they looked forward to it, especially the mothers were always looking for, am I gonna give birth to the Messiah? This was a great desire of women in, in the Judaism was to give birth to the Messiah because they knew that he would be born of a woman. And that was every one of them. And, and Mary is the one that gets chosen. And her answer was, who am I? I'm not even, I didn't even slept with a man yet. And who am I to give birth to the Messiah? And here we see, he's saying, he brings a child. And you can almost picture the disciples like, okay, we asked you a question and you're, you're bringing a child into amongst of us? You know, Jesus, what are you doing? Remember a couple chapters back when, he, when, he, when the ch disciples were trying to chase the children away and he says, don't prevent these children from coming unto me. Now, you got to think about this. Number one, children wanted to come to Jesus, so that says a lot about who he, Jesus is. Children do not go to grumpy, angry, upset adults. They're just not drawn to those type of people. They're drawn to, to adults that show love and kindness toward them. They might know that they're going to be disciplined and still come to them, but they, you know, and you know, you can watch the children. They know who, what, what adults are going to treat them good and what adults aren't going to treat them good. And they'll go very, very quickly to adults that will treat them good. So Jesus is drawing this kid in, and the disciples are probably looking at each other like, okay, we asked a serious question. What's, what's he bringing this kid into the midst for? You know, this little child, what's he bringing this kid into to our group for? You know, we just asked an honest question. We want to know what we need to do to be, to be the best. And then he says, verily or truly, I say unto you, Except you be converted and become as a little child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he says, truly I say unto you that unless you be converted. Now this converted is a strong word. It means to turn from one's own self and from one's mode of conduct to something else. This is what it means to repent. To become a true follower of Christ, to become a Christian, we must convert. We must repent. Turn from what we want to do and turn to God and live in his power. Again, doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. We've got to put that in there. We're not going to be perfect because we never can be. But our desire should be toward God. Our desire should be to please and do the things that, that please him. Uh, you know, we have the freedom to do whatever we want to do in Christ. But you know, I heard somebody this morning that was, that was kind of an interesting thought. Because when you have a baby, you child-proof your house. You put little plugs in your, little plug guards in your plugs. You put anything that's breakable up high. Why do you do that? Because babies grab everything and put their fingers in every place. When they get older, as long as we've taught them well, <laughs> we can put the breakable things down a little lower. We can take the plugs out of of the sockets. Why are we doing that? Are we saying, kids, I want you to just break everything and stick your fingers in the plugs? No, we say, we think you've grown enough that you can live a civilized lifestyle and do what you're supposed to do. God gives us the permission to do whatever we please, but at the same time, he's saying, I'm, I want you to also be grown up enough that you're not going to play around with sin. You're not going to play around with the things you're not supposed to. He goes, you've got freedom. But it's not freedom to go do whatever I want that's against God. It's freedom 
to be obedient to God on my own without having to wait for the slap on the wrist every time I reach out to touch something. And, you know, and isn't that what we do with our babies? You know, it's just a, they reach out to touch it. No, you know, slap them on the wrist. No, no, don't do that. The poor kids, no wonder they learn no first is the first word they learn. That's the first word they hear all the time. And, but you know, as they grow older, we're not there standing over them telling them no all the time because they hopefully have learned not to do some of the things that are going to hurt them. Now, we spend a lot more years of their life teaching them not to do things that are going to hurt them. But that is what God says. He goes, I'm giving you freedom. I'm giving you freedom to grow. I'm giving you freedom to do what's right by your own choice. And, not, and if you don't do the right things, you will suffer the consequences. But he says, unless you be converted, changed, and become as a little child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. We are to become like a child. Now, even in our day, you know, what are children really worth? I mean, they're a pride and joy. You know, we love them and everything. But uh, nobody usually desires to be a child. You know, you know do, you, do you want to go back and be a child where you can't do, you can't drive, you can't go where you want, you can't do the things you want, uh, you have to go to school, you have to do all, you know, do all these things that other people tell you? Now, maybe, some, sometimes it sounds pretty good. But I think if you really think about it, it's not what you want to do. Before the school part. Before the school part. <laughs> Playing play in the mud. Well, it's a reversal of the way we think as a human. Sure it is. I stop acting as, as, as if I'm important and I become the humble child that is under the care of somebody else. And that's what conversion to Christ is. I quit doing what I want to do and I put my care, myself under the care of God completely. I turn away from what I want to what he wants and totally submit myself to God. And this is contrary to the world. The world wants to do everything the way they want to. Frank Sinatra had it down fat. I did it my way. Uh, you know, the only problem is doing it your way is going to lead you straight to hell. And ultimately is not enjoyable. If you can remember back before you got saved, there's no enjoyment in all that you get. And if you can't think back to when you got saved, think about everything you read about the, the superstars of today who just aren't happy. They seem to have everything everybody wants. They've got money, wealth, uh, possessions, uh, status. Everybody seems to like them. And they always wonder, do they like me because of who I am or because they like me? And we need to become where we turn our back on all of that stuff that we think we want and turn our decision toward God. Uh, you know, the children really aren't that important. Even in our own day and age, you know, yes, we love our kids and all that, but how important is the child when, you know, in the grand scheme of things, do you want to be the child? Do you want to be the baby? Not really. You want to be the adult, hopefully. I don't, don't want to see any more children raising children. It doesn't work. But he says, you've got to be like this child. Turn away from what you want and turn to me, just as this child. And one thing nice about toddlers and, and, and uh, infants, they need a parent for everything, literally. They can't feed themselves. They can't get anywhere, especially the infant. They can't get anywhere without the parent. They can't do anything. They need the parent to do things. Now, when they become independent two- and three-year-olds, then we have trouble with them. <laughs> Uh, 
Huh? Well, there's an innocence. There is an innocency in, in a child. Children will believe pretty much what they're told, over, you know, in general, until they've had enough bad experiences to become calloused. And that's one thing that's happening in our day and age. Our children are growing up way too fast because they're being exposed to things they should not be exposed to. And we've got kids that are, you know, 8, 9, 10 years old who've gone through, through more hardship than a lot of 20 and 30, 40, 50 year olds have ever gone through in their entire life because of lack of parenting, lack of all these other things. And they get caustic early you know, because they just don't believe anymore. They've been lied to so many times. But you know, you get a child that is just going to receive what you say. And they just, they just accept it. Jesus is saying, be that way with God. Accept what he gives you. And I love it. I used to love working with kids. There was a time when working with fifth and sixth graders was a, was a big joy. And then all of a sudden, they started getting older too fast. And I dropped down about fourth grade. Pretty much now, you've got to be almost down to second or third grade to get that, that same level of innocency with kids anymore. And it is very sad how much the world is hurting children, which goes in the rest of this verse. They're hurting the children and taking their childhood away from them. And that's a sad thing to see. But God is saying to us, for us as Christians, will you stay innocent? Will you stay, you know, almost naive and trust in God, whatever God says? And I can tell you, in one sense, it was great for my family's money, but becoming a manager was probably the worst thing in the world for me because it took away a lot of my innocence and na naiveness because all of a sudden I saw people stealing from me. Not just customers, but employees, you know, and all of a sudden I got very callous toward people. And it took God a long time to take that callousness back away from me and return a softness toward people because I went from trusting people until they proved that they weren't trustworthy to you're going to have to prove to me that you're trustworthy. And that's not a good place to be as a Christian. Definitely not a good place to be as a pastor. But even as a Christian, it's not, we don't want to meet everybody and say, okay, I'm not going to trust you until you prove that I can trust you. Now, we should very quickly understand whether somebody's trustworthy because there's signs out there that say, I'm not trustworthy, don't trust me. But there's also things that say, this is somebody you can trust. And he's saying you need to be like this children, children toward God. You come to him with total innocency. And what he says, you do. What, you, what he says, you believe. This is one of the reasons why I'm very picky about who will teach children in, in a Sunday school. You're, as their teacher, lay in a foundation. And if you don't teach them the truth, you can mess them up for, the, for the most of their life until they finally get hold of a teacher who teaches them the right way. And then it's got a conflict in their mind, who, who's right? You know, teacher so-and-so that I don't remember, but I have my teacher in, in when I was six years old that told me this. And if it's false, you're laying a foundation that's very harmful. And that's why God says, many of you ought not to be teachers for the condemnation is greater for those who teach. Why? Because we influence people's lives. We better know what we're doing. We better know that we're teaching God's word and not just my opinion. And walking somebody down the primrose path to, to destruction instead of teaching them correctly. And why I want to get into God's word and I want to study and I want to know his word so that people can grow in his word. And, you know, it says, be like a child. And you got to, again, picture this. These are guys that children are totally worthless. And Jesus says, I want you to be like a child. <laughs> 
And it says, whosoever shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He that will humble themselves as a child, get rid of their rank. The Bible teaches us as Christians that we are to serve one another. Too many times we're sitting around saying, okay, God, uh, who's going to serve me, God? And God says, I want you to serve. Jesus served his entire life. He served. He spent all of his time ministering to these disciples. Matter of fact, when he gets to the upper room, he washes the disciples' feet. And I'm not sure if that means as much to you as it does me because I understand the principle. The washing of the people's feet coming into the house was given to the most inept, uh, clumsy servant because it was a job that they probably couldn't mess up. All you had to do was pour so some water on them, put some soap on it, wash it, and pour more water on their feet. If you couldn't do that, you, were, you didn't deserve to do anything. So they would take the guy who couldn't carry the platter of dishes without breaking them, uh, you know, would sweep the floor, knocking everything off the, off the walls and the, and the counters, and give them the job of washing the feet. It's the lowliest position of so you walk around right the dust Well, it was a dirty job, but it was also, it was just, it was a job that you gave to the ser servant. It was a simple job, and you gave it to the, the least respected servant that you had in your house. This is a strange thing, because like, I was at an inn meeting one time, and they, they did that exercise, and I had somebody do it for me. It's just really, it's really, I don't know, I don't even know how to explain it. It's, 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 it's a humbling event for us, but it also doesn't, I'm not as impressed with it, because it doesn't mean the same thing in our, in our day and age to wash somebody's feet. I would be more impressed with somebody saying, I'm going to go scrub out the toilets because that would be the lowest level job I could think of in a, in a church. I'm going to go you know, scrub out the toilets because that's, you know, it's something that is low. No, no respect in it. Uh, there's almost a pride in the way churches do this foot washing thing. You know, I was humble enough that I, I went bent down and I washed your feet. But will you go wash the toilet? But will, yeah, will you go wash the toilet? Will you, will you go pull the weeds out of the, out of the, out of the, out of the property? Will you dust the, dust the, oh no, 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 no way. You know? uh, and this is what this foot washing was all about. It was the lowest of lowest jobs. And it is equivalent to doing the job that nobody's going to, Nobody's going to say, oh, well, good job. I am so glad you did that job. Now, they probably are glad when people clean the toilets because they don't get all grimy and grungy and everything. But it, nobody gets praised usually for cleaning, cleaning the bathrooms. Nobody usually gets praised for dusting, the, dusting everything. It's just a job you do because you're going to serve the Lord. That's what, that's what it means to be humbled. He goes, to become like this child with no rank. And God talks all the time about being the servant leader, being a leader by serving others. And the interesting thing about being a servant leader is when you serve people, they end up tending to come back and do, do things for you as well, and even without being asked. And it's not your, it shouldn't be your goal and your, and your prospect, but people will say, well, if you can do this, I can do this. I mean, when I was a manager, I would do things. I purposely did all the dirty jobs and, and let people know that they were done. For two reasons. Number one, I wanted to tell them that I'm not asking you to do anything I can't or won't do. And number two, to show them that I can do this. If you didn't want to do this, I can do this and I won't need you. And, but a servant leader is doing the simplest, dirtiest jobs. It's not going to get glory. And then eventually people will usually take their job from them and say, oh, yeah, you, you deserve them. <laughs> you des they promote you in the process. 
And this will happen to us as we serve people. People will give back and they will start sending back the, the service. But it's not we serve them for the motive of, well, I'm going to manipulate all these guys into serving me by being their servant. No. We honestly serve them because if you're manipulating people, they know it. And there's no response back from a manipulated person. Uh, people will know that they're being manipulated. It doesn't ever work. So we go on. He says, be like this little child because that is what it takes to be the greatest. Uh, another place it says, the, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. If you're striving to be number one, then I'm going to say you've got your glory. You're going to be, you're going to be the last. And this is what's going to be rewarded in heaven. And this is why we keep saying, when we get to heaven, we are going to be shocked at who is rewarded and who is not rewarded. Because we're going to think, well, this guy preached to millions of people and did this, that, and the other thing. And God's going to say, well, here's your, here's your box of treasure. And he's going to take somebody else that we don't know anything about, you know, that we didn't know. And he goes, well, you spent all your time on your knees praying and and loving on people and giving gifts to people. And here's your, here's your mansion full of of treasures. We are going to be surprised. And it's not even just how much or how little we do. What did he say about the widow who gave the two pennies? He said she has given more than all these guys who have dumped boxes full of money in because she gave all that she had. She did not have a lot to give, but he gave, she gave all. And he said, this is great. She's the greatest. You know, they gave you know, they gave their 10%, but she gave 100%, but she doesn't even know where her dinner's coming from tonight because she just gave everything. I'd love to hear the rest of her story. And can't wait to get to heaven and, and find the widow and say, what was the rest of your story? What, how did God bless you after you gave that offering? Because you know that she didn't go home and die, not with that much of blessing from God, you know, that he noticed her and used her as an example. I can't believe that she just went home and died that night of starvation. I believe that God did something miraculous for her and gave her some kind of bountiful meal and, and stuff. Because that's how he is. He loves us enough that when we give to him, he gives back super abundantly. And then he says in verse 5, Whosoever shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. This word for receive is not just to accept, but it is to joyfully and excitedly accept. Again, put your mindset into the Jewish mindset here. This is a child. You did not joyfully accept the child's presence. Maybe if you were the dad and at home, you took some pleasure in the hug of your, your child giving you the hug when you got home. But especially out in the public, you did not joyfully receive this child and say, oh, look at this kid, you know. Uh, no, because remember, we said, they're, they're, you know, we said you're there to be seen and not heard, but in their day, they weren't even to be seen. And they're going, whoever rejoices over this child in my name receives me, gets the same joyful reception from me. And again, we've talked about in Jesus' name on many occasions. In his name literally means all of his authority, all of his power, all of his reputation. We receive that child in Jesus' name. We also receive him. Oh, isn't it important that we stay humble and we treat one another special? You know, and I've shared with you guys so many times, and I really mean it. I love when a new Christian comes up to me and says, look what I just discovered in the Bible. And you know, sometimes I've had them share things with me that I have never thought about. 
But it resonates that it's true because it matches everything else I know about the Bible, but I never thought about it the way they thought about it. And it's quite miraculous sometimes. Sometimes it's just something I've heard a hundred times, but I'm still going to tell them, that's excellent, I'm glad. Why? Because I'm glad they're in the God's Word. I'm glad they're learning something from God. And I want to receive them with great dignity. Because if I go, oh, well, that was nothing, what does that tell them? Well, I wasted my time. Why should I, why should I be in God's Word when you know, I'm just, they're just going to blow it off? And I've shared with you, I used to do a Bible and answer question at a time at the end of every, on, on the fourth Sunday of every month with my Sunday school class. And I loved it when they go, I've got a, great, I've got a, great, I've got a wonderful question. This is going to be a stumper. I'm going, I'm looking forward to it. You know, and every, occasionally there'd be a decent question. Mostly it was questions I had heard many times before, but I always said, that's a good question. Let's, let's talk about it. Why? Because I wanted them to stay in God's word. I'm not, I wasn't going to, oh, you think that's a hard question? What, what's wrong with you? If I had said that, nobody had ever come to another question at all, ever. But we do this in the church frequently with our kids. How do you know there's a God? How can you dare ask how do you know there's a God? You know, how do we know that the Bible is God's word? Oh, you don't believe? And I've seen people take that reaction, to, especially with teenagers. And I'm going, uh, come over here with that question. I, I will deal with that. And then later on, I get the adult and go, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> I want questions that you may think are sacrilegious to be asked in church. Because if they're not asking them in church, they're asking them outside the church, and they're going to have the wrong answer outside the church. I want every irreligious question that they could possibly think of to be answered as long as they're real questions and not just trying to be silly. But, you know, this is what he's saying. You receive them in my name, then you receive him. Then he goes on to, but whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him to, that a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Offend, put a stumbling block, make them stumble. And this isn't just little children at this point. How many times has a new Christian, maybe even yourself, been said something sharply to by somebody you respected who had been a Christian for a while and kind of made you think twice about asking a question or doing something or appearing like you didn't know what you were talking about? Putting a stumbling block in front of children. Children are inquisitive. I don't know if you all remember little children. Why is the sky blue? Why did, why did it rain? Why is the rainbow there? Why, why is the dirt the way it is? Why does the wind blow? You know, why, 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 why? And you know what? We don't want to shut down. We may want to shut down the why, but we really don't want to because we want the children to be inquisitive. If we're coming to God as a child, we're going to be inquisitive. God, Why? Why this? Why that? Why, why did you say this? Why did you do that? How, how come you did this? Why? Those are good questions for us. Trying to understand God is very important. There's a way to study the Bible that's pretty, pretty good. It's called the interrogative or inductive study. Who, what, why, where, and, and uh, who, what, why, where, when. <laughs> uh, ask those questions when you're reading the Bible. Who, who's talking? Who are the characters? Who are the, who's the audience? When did this happen? Why did it happen? Huh? Journalism. Journalism. The journalistic questions. You know, really analyze the word of God and find out what's going on. Now, does every single book of the Bible lend itself well to that? No. Psalms and Proverbs do not really lend themselves well to the interrogative study. But a lot of it does. When you're reading the gospel, you really do. 
Okay, who, is, who are the characters here? Who's being talked to? Who's teaching? Who's, who's, who is the audience? Uh, and kind of figure out what's going on. And well, I'm getting to that now. Like, well, wait a minute. What, what, who is that? Where did he come from? Yeah. Why is he there? Yeah. Well, why is this question important? You know, yeah. All of these things are important for us to understand because God wants us to be inquisitive. He, wants us, he doesn't want us to grow up to where we think we know everything and we're afraid to ask questions. It doesn't take long for a child to get to the place where they're afraid to ask questions, especially if they're, you know, now shut up, you're not supposed to ask those questions, but even if you're not treated that way, there comes a point where your pride just won't let you ask questions. Well, I can't ask that question. I'm probably the only person that's thinking this way. And they might think that I'm dumb or I don't know anything. Needless to say, every other person in the room is probably thinking the same question, and all of them are afraid that they're the only one thinking it, so we're better off asking the question. You might be speaking for, uh, for everybody yeah. in the room. You know? Yeah. I think that's why sometimes, sometimes when I go to new studies, where, you know, I'll almost say something in the thing, but other people wouldn't necessarily say, you know, just to see where everybody's at. Yeah. It's not anything bad about them. <laughs> I've had that happen. I've had that happen to me. I've had people make really crazy statements, and I'm looking at, do you really believe what you just said? Uh, and I'm usually follow it up with, well, why did you say that? <laughs> what are you What are you trying to find out? Because I had one guy goes, well, I'm not sure I believe that, and I, and I had just read the Bible, and I'm going, did I make any comment? Because I have a habit of commenting as I read the Bible, and I'm going, no, I didn't. I'm going, well, your argument's with God, not with me. <laughs> uh, and I don't know that he believed it, or he was just challenging to see how I would react. Yeah. But he says, if you offend, you put a stumbling block and went in front of these little ones. And that, like I say, can be a new Christian or even an older Christian who's going to have a stumbling block. He says, it was better for you that a millstone were hung around his neck and that he was drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, this is kind of a very strong point because he's talking about a millstone that's so big in the Greek that it has to take an animal to turn it. And you, know, you all know what a millstone is, right? You, you put your, you have a big block of stone, and you put your weed on there, and then you have another wheel that's rolled around and crushes it into fine powder. Usually weighing in the, in the range of several hundred to th several thousands of pounds. Okay, this is quite a picture Jesus is saying. You know, just picture having a millstone hung around your neck in the first place. It really would mean anything to you because the millstone would be standing up here and you've got to strap around your neck. Uh, okay, I've got this big stone. I can't move, but I've got this big stone. But then he goes further and is cast into the depths of the sea. And he's talking about the deep sea, not, not just a small body of water. But he's saying, I'm going to stick this thousand pound rock around your neck and throw you into the deepest sea. And that's how bad I think this punishment is. Do we really think that it's that bad to harm somebody who's being inquisitive for God, that's being childlike? If we took this very seriously, we'd be very careful how we deal with others that don't seem to be as far advanced as we think we are in any aspect, in any aspect of life. Well, how could that person act the way they do? <laughs> judging, judging one of God's little children especially if you speak it out to them. You know, we need to be careful because we don't know where they're at. We don't know what's going on in their life. And I've watched some people grow so far and then people have shut them down completely and just blasted them and wasted lots of investment time in, their, in them because they offended 
a young, tender-hearted person that's seeking God. Not necessarily perfect, maybe not even, even good, but seeking God with their heart. And maybe making and doing, saying dumb things. Maybe even saying things that really have no place to be said. I've seen many adults that do that. They're just inappropriate. They do all kinds of things that shouldn't be said or done or because they just don't know any better. See it all the time in the prison. There's, there's all, all kinds of 30 and 40 year old kids in the prison. Uh, and you know, when, they're only, when they only are as kids, I can deal with it. You know, they're just being a kid. It's when they're obnoxious and, and prideful that I have more trouble with them. But when they're just being a kid, oh, you're a 40 year old kid. <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, but Jesus is saying, don't offend a child because the consequences are great. And we need to understand this. We need to understand when we're dealing with young Christians, not to shut them down, not to hurt them, not to make them feel bad. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to allow them necessarily to continue inappropriate behavior. There's a place for that kind of correction, but it needs to be gently and in love. And when I say in gently and in love, it goes back to what I've said all the time. Don't even try that until you've been praying for the person. If you're not praying for somebody, you have no business trying to correct their life. None. You don't love them enough to be praying for them. You have no business trying to correct them. If you love them enough to be praying for them, seriously praying for them, the first thing you're going to find out is 90% of the time God changes your mind about them and gives you great love for them and you, let, and you decide to let God deal with them. On a few occasions you come and you go, this is inappropriate, you know, you, and you do it, but you're doing it out of love. And I hope you all know the difference. I hope, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen it. Somebody coming at you that has no love in their life. You know, you just want to, you know, that kind of person, you just want to smack. You know, they, you know why, why are you talking to me? Why are you trying to correct me? But if you have somebody who's presenting their, their case in love, usually it's so gentle that you don't even know you've been rebuked until after you're done and you get back and you go, you know, that guy just kind of hit me right between the eyes and I didn't even notice. That's where love comes in. They say it gentle. They say it with great compassion and hurt. I don't want to see you suffering. I want to teach you that, you know, don't do this. Or if you have a relationship with somebody and you've been invited to speak into their life. You know, I, there's three guys, uh, uh, two guys, myself as the third, but we can say anything to each other because we've invited each other in and we each know each other very well. They're the guy and the guys that can come up to me and go, how are you doing in this area of your life? Because they know what areas of my life I'm weak in. And I'm going, you know, uh, I'm doing really good or, well, I wish you hadn't asked me, but, you know, <laughs> and I can do the same thing back to them. And there's times when it's happened with each one of us that we've had to go, you know, I've noticed this going on in your life and I've been very concerned. I just need to present it to you. This is what I think God wants you to be looking at. But we've invited each other in. We pray for one another. We, we love each other so carefully that we don't want to see harm come into our lives. And that's what the whole purpose of correction into somebody's life is, that I care so much for you, I don't want to see you go over this cliff that you're headed toward. Not, how could you be going to this cliff? You know, you come that way and, you know, we've all been there. We've all been attacked by somebody in God's kingdom trying to teach us how we should be behaving. And our defenses go up immediately when they attack us, and rightfully so. And whether they're right or wrong doesn't even matter to us when we feel attacked. 
And you know, the sad thing is they're probably mostly right. The way they did it is not. But we need to really, even when we feel that we're being attacked, we need to give it some credence saying, God, is this something I need to pay attention to? And let them go. <laughs> but, you know, we, we hope that it's always in love. Yeah, I did this to one of the guys at the prison one time, about, about many months ago now. I gave him very, pretty hard correction, actually. And he came back to me later on. He goes, you just corrected me pretty hard, didn't you? I'm going, yeah. He goes, I didn't even, he didn't notice it at the time. I go, yeah, you didn't notice it at the time because I love you. I don't want to see you do all these things that you're headed into doing. I want to see you walk with God in a very strong way. But we learn to love one another. And, and then we can then come into people's lives and correct. But if we come in harshly, we can shut somebody down. We can, we can destroy somebody's walk with God by coming in too harsh with them and saying, you know, granted they shouldn't. <laughs> you know, it's still between them and God and what, they, what they've done. But it can happen that you can be the instrument that can harm somebody's walk with God. And we want to be very careful that we're not that instrument, that we're loving people, that we're building them up, that we're edifying them. And given the occasion, we correct, gently correct. Because we're not God. We don't know everything. And I have said this over and over. You know, I don't want to be trying to correct people's lives. I don't want everybody coming to me and go, Pastor, what should I be doing? I don't want that much responsibility. I have enough trouble with my own life most of the time. You know, and my family that I'm having to, to lead. I don't need to be the answer man for what, what do I do in this situation? What should I do in this situation? What should I, I don't want that responsibility. I'm going to tell you what God says about things, but that's all the responsibility I want. I want God to work with people to show them where they should go and what they should do because I've made plenty of mistakes. I don't need to be trying to guide other people into these mistakes. And I do the best I can to try not to get into those things. Now, if somebody wants counsel, I'll sit down. We'll go into the Bible and say this is what the Bible says. Because that's all I can do. Point you to the same place I go. And my dad was good at this. When I was a teenager, whenever we asked him a question, back to the Bible. <laughs> Let's see what God says. <laughs> and we go back to the Bible. And you know, wonderful as a teenager when, God, when, when all your answers came from God. You know, hard to argue. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't, Dad, I don't agree with you. It was like, okay, Dad, you gave me God's word. I guess I've got to, I guess I've got to accept that because there's no other, no other answer. But how are we looking at people? Are we looking at them with love and very deep concern? And that will show in the way we deal with them. It's the same thing with their kids. You know, there's a lot of controversy over whether you should spank a child or not spank a child. Spanking a child is what God says to do. You give them enough pain that they don't want to do it again. But that does not mean you beat the child. There's a big difference between discipline, where you cause enough pain that they're not going to want to do it again, to abuse. And it's a very thin line. My dad used to do this to us all the time. Go up in your room and think about what you've done. And I'll be up there in a little while. Now, as a kid, I always thought, you know, what, what's he got to think, what, what have I got to think about? I've got to think about the spanking? You know, which is usually what you ended up doing. <laughs> yeah. But I know now as an adult and as a father, my dad was saying, you go up to your room while I cool off. <laughs> so that when I spank you, it's not in anger. It'll be as discipline. Because I did it to my own kids. Go to your room and think about what you've done. Because <laughs> I was ready to kill them at the moment. And I knew that I couldn't discipline them when I was ready to kill them. I had to calm down so that it would really be discipline and not abuse. God does the same thing with us. He's going to discipline. 
He sent us to his room. He doesn't have to calm down, though. He doesn't have to calm down before he disciplines like we do. So he doesn't really have to send us to our room. Uh, so let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we ask you to help us to learn to minister to people in a God-like, Christ-like way. Teach us. Teach us to love one another. Teach us to be prayerfully considerate of our brothers and sisters so that we will be loving and kind to them. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen.